The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the weekly podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-post yet still very racial America. You could say all that or just call this show about race. I'm Anna Holmes, and joining me from the Panoply Studios in New York are Raquel Cepeda. Hi, Raquel. Hello. Hello. I like the way you said my name, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> I, knew, I knew it was going to come up. Tanner Colby. Hey, Tanner. Hello, Anna. And from L.A., joining us through the power of technology and the interwebs is Baratunde Thurston. Hi, Baratunde. Hello, hello, podcast co-discussant team. Co-discussant. Squad. <laughs> so the election's only a couple of weeks away, and like everyone else, we are feeling a bit fatigued. So we decided to take some time out today to talk about television. And yes, that means Atlanta, the show, that is. For the listeners who are not caught up, a little bit of a backstory for for those who don't know what Atlanta is. It's a new television. I would call, I would call it kind of a dramedy. It's not really a comedy. It's not really a drama. I say a dr- comedy noir. Comedy noir. I call it a crama. Okay. <laughs> why? Why? Why a crama? Because it's a comedy drama. Okay. Oh. Well, I'm calling it a dramedy because that's the because that's the that's the proper word. Um, I'm calling it a biopic. <laughs> Baratunde, what do you what would you call it? Breakfast. Breakfast. Okay, okay, okay. romance novel. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Science fiction. So so it's a dramedy on FX that is created by and stars Donald Glover. The show is at least overtly centered around the struggles of two men trying to make it in the music industry. The rapper Paperboy. Really? All about that Paperboy. I'm awake. <laughs> so there's Paperboy and there's also Paperboy's cousin Ernest, also known as Ern, who is played by Donald Glover himself. To me, Atlanta is sort of a strange show, which is to say that I've never really seen anything quite like it before. And it's engendering a lot of discussion, including among the stars of this podcast when we're off mic. So we wanted to bring the conversation on mic. And I've been talking about it on mic. That, I thank yes. you profusely yes. and Baritone Day yes. for putting me yeah. onto it. Remember well, last week? I was like, oh my God. I mean, not yeah. last week, whenever a I was here weeks last week. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I mentioned it at the end of an episode about recommendations, but we didn't like explicate the show. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do today. So. I've been watching episodes pretty much only on the FX app via my cable provider. And the commercials that accompany each episode, at least on the FX app, seem to suggest that the show is for old, white, and perhaps male audience. I'm seeing commercials for things like hair loss restoration, prefabricated <laughs> steel outbuildings, they need hearing a new aids. Team. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm, I'm, not, I'm watching it. On the FX app through Amazon Prime oh, okay. on my TV. Oh. I'm not getting any of You're that. You're not getting those. Okay, well, those are the no, ones I'm getting. That's weird. I'm not getting those either. I'm watching it on demand. <laughs> Time Warner Cable. What is it about me getting those commercials? Yeah, I think those commercials are targeted to you. <laughs> yeah. Baratunde, what about you? Uh, I watch it through a mirror that bounces the signal 
off of my neighbors who do an audio version, like re-recording the show every week. So it's a wholly different experience. It's like a second second order. Not just I watch it on iTunes, no commercials whatsoever. I get the best version. Okay. So one of the one of the Washington Post TV critics had said in his review of the show, he said it will be interesting to see how many viewers come to Atlanta willing to view it from a place other than amused privilege. And I don't really quite know what he what he meant by that. I don't know that I view it with amused privilege, but I guess maybe if I if, <laughs> if I did I wouldn't know. So I want to ask who do you think this show is for and what is it actually about? I think it's for Donald Glover. Yeah, fair and, bingo. In, in, in the sense that he was just like Louis C.K. and Woody Allen and and white auteurs have done done for years. Here's a palette, go and create what you want. And he created something that he wanted to create. It's one of the probably the only show by and for people of color that I feel hasn't been market tested to who is this appealing to? What's the audience? Uh, so you think like, it's for people of color? You just said that. No, I said I said. By and created, I mean created by. Okay. Yeah. Do you mean comedy only or in any show on television? Eh, well, maybe that's kind of a broad statement because I don't watch all of television, but you know. Really? Well, what? I just feel like he was just like, yeah, go do do something, whatever you want to do. And I, obviously we don't know how much FX was involved in giving him notes or shaping it or whatever, but it seems like it was, he got to do what he wanted to do, which I think is great. It seems like that to me as well, except that making a television show is a very, very, very expensive thing. And I don't think that executives are just like, just go do whatever you want to do. To catch but no, but they, they, they did that himself. with Louis C.K. They, they said, if you keep it under this budget, you can do whatever the hell you want. We okay. just and with Portlandia. With and with Portlandia and as yeah. well. And I also think, I'm hoping uh, that some of these TV executives are realizing that the opposite way to make shows, which is to over-test, to optimize, to ask mm. a toothpaste manufacturer what they think should be on television. Yeah. is not a good way to get an interesting story. And so like the more layers of non-creativity you remove from blocking the creative process, you might increase your odds of actually making art worth consuming. So I, I think I agree with Tanner. The show is for Donald Glover, but I also think more broadly, it's just for fans of nuance and like cool art stuff and black people. Like, it, And it's for <laughs> people who who have some relationship to the city of Atlanta as well. Like the number of happy vibes I'm picking up from people who are just excited to see a city at, presented as a character in all of its beauty and flaws and conflicts and segregation, uh, class and race. It's just, it's, they've done a pretty good job with that. So I think, you know, the show is always made for the person who makes it. Just You write the books for yourself first and hopefully you're not alone in the universe. And I think Donald Glover has proven to us he is far from alone. Uh, so I've never been to Atlanta. Can I, can but... I answer that too? Yeah. Okay. I love the show because I feel like, um, while I'm not a black American male, I feel like the show is being made for me. Because for me, even when I read the reviews, like, oh, this is really like magic realism to me. It's like just plain old regular everyday life. And I feel like, I don't know, maybe because I'm from the South of the Dominican Republic, I feel like Southern people from everywhere kind of like, I don't know, maybe there's like a meeting point where there's some kind of intersection. I don't know. We have these commonalities, but in the <laughs> in the specifics and the stuff that was so about Atlanta and so about like kind of like nuanced, I felt like myself most comfortably watching the show. Okay, but like, what, what what is that? Like, like what is the stuff that's about, about Atlanta? Because I've never been to Atlanta, which is to say I don't know the city at all. So what is it on the show that feels specifically Atlanta? Like, can someone kind of put that in context for me? Well, yeah, I, have you? Been, oh, you've been ahead, to Atlanta. Well, yeah, I, I, as the as the whitest person, but also the token southerner, 
in the room. It's just Atlanta for so much of the history of the South was the epicenter of black life, everything from the black upper class to right. black. And it, I think it just shows the breadth of black life in that city that, in ex- that, city. that exists all up and down the socioeconomic and, and educational spectrum, which everywhere else in the country you get, you go to Los Angeles, they're going to show you Watts. You go to New York, they're okay. going to show the Bronx. Okay. Whereas Atlanta is, is home to this sort of more multifaceted black community. And I think that's what it's showing. It goes everything from the housing projects and they're involved in some shootout and the hip-hop community all the way up to this black upper class you see in the mm-hmm. Juneteenth episode. Okay. But, but Raquel, you look like you're about to... No, no. Like I, I agree. I'm agreeing, no, because I spent quite a... When I started out writing as a hip-hop journalist, I spent a lot of time in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I remember just like, first of all, yeah, it is super complex. And that's when I first learned about Jack and Jill. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what the hell that was, but... <laughs> Jack and Jill is an organization that is basically for the parents of sort of well-to-do black kids who are somewhat alone in their school environments or in their neighborhoods. Like there's no critical mass because your classes let you somewhat escape the black community. So it's a created, it's like an original social network without the technology to allow these children to mingle together. Uh, It's got a long history. It's got probably a lot of good. It's got some controversy about the type of black people that felt welcome in Jack and Jill and what skin tone they were supposed to have to kind of be acceptable, this notorious paper bag test for anyone who wants to kind of Google that to get a little more history that doesn't already know it. But, uh, you know, I was not in Jack and Jill. I knew people who were, having gone to private school. There was a certain number of other black students in the private school who were part of Jack and Jill because their parents recognized that if you just ship your black kid off into a moneyed white world, like that experiment could result in some strange consequences that maybe you don't want as a parent. And you want to make it, but you also don't want to abandon your your culture and your history and your community. So, so Jack and Jill was formed as like this glue to, to re-stitch mm-hmm. together a sense of blackness, even with money, which America mm. usually tries to deny. Yeah, he described it way better and way, way more PC <laughs> than I could ever. Oh. But I remember like, you know, I would spend a lot of times in strip clubs, right? Like doing interviews or whatever. And I would have some of the most energetic, intellectually driven conversations with rappers that other people are like, act, you know, you're, you're portraying this, you're portraying this role, you fit into this world. So, mm-hmm. but then you, meanwhile, you're like, I never experienced that world. Mm-hmm. And then seeing that clash come together, I think that high, low art, if you will, yeah. all the clashes that happen there, mm-hmm. I think he captures it beautifully. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I guess I, I haven't thought about it is that being specific to Atlanta, the city, even though what I know about Atlanta, which is not nothing, is that it does have a whole range of, of classes and it has a very, very vigorous and, and vibrant black community. I guess I just thought, well, so do most urban centers. But um, well, I, yeah, I, I but understand that Atlanta is maybe particularly special in that regard. Well, I think there's it's also one, true. There's one article, yeah, in, in one article in particular I recommend on this subject is at Blavity.com. And the, the headline is Donald Glover's Atlanta Shines a Light on the City's Flawed History. And just the, the physical construction of Atlanta, the, the roads, the segregation, it's actually stuff mm-hmm. that, you know, Tanner, you've written about in your book about federal housing policy and how that has led to our very segregated America. Like Atlanta is a super complex capital of that. The role of transportation in the show when Ern doesn't have a car and he has to take the bus around. Like you see mm-hmm. how, you know, some cities that would not be such a challenge, like New York City, right, <laughs> Washington, right. D.C., Seattle, Washington, you know, the many other cities have invested in public transit in a different way than 
Atlanta, which is like lived and died by the car and, and 10 lane freeways. So that's, that's one very Atlanta specific kind of infrastructural way. But then the way those freeways uh, often bisect communities by race, uh, leading to a beautiful segregated mosaic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to go to the issue of, of like the tone of the show. For me, the first episode and in the second made me pretty uncomfortable. And I was trying to figure out why. I'm kind of still trying to figure out why I felt so uncomfortable about, about them. Reading up a little bit about the show and what Donald Glover has said about it, he said that he doesn't like being preached to by TV shows about how people should act. It doesn't feel authentic. He wants people to, quote, wonder why they're laughing or why that made them uncomfortable rather than tell them why they're a bad person or a good person for feeling that way. And so I wanted to know, first of all, did the show or does it make you uncomfortable in any in any way? And if so, why do you think that is? And I'll just say for myself, I think it initially made me uncomfortable because it did not shy away from some stereotypes about black life, people of, of, of lower economic classes and, and black men in particular, like the talk of drugs or the depiction of drugs and of guns and of rap music. It's hard for me to explain why, except that I was surprised that he that he dove right into that so quickly on the show, even if he's tweaking it somewhat. So what I'm saying is that I'm not sure why it made me uncomfortable and, and kind of still does, although I think that I've become more relaxed about the milieus that he's set the show in. Raquel. I love the show. I mean, I was like thanking you. I was like praying to you and Baratunde the moment that I like in the first few minutes. But but, but saying it makes me uncomfortable doesn't mean I don't like it. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't uncomfortable at all because okay. I, I, I understand the hip hop scene. And, you know, they always go back to this like in between the black and white binary. They go into this almost every single um, episode. And what I really liked, I'm not sure if it was the first or second episode when the white guy found himself, the radio station yeah. dude, found himself yeah. really comfortable and just said the N word. And yeah. I mean, that's happened to me. My favorite scene, actually, when I knew I was going to like it, was when I first saw Vanessa or Van mm-hmm. turn around and like look at him. And I saw that her hair was natural. Like, you know, actually, I knew it was natural because of the way she wrapped it. To me, it, it was very, it challenged all this, like all the stereotypes, basically, that we're used to seeing, especially today, that center around black and Latina women of color. Baratuna, do you think that it challenges stereotypes? I think it does. I'm stuck on the uh, the discomfort question mm-hmm. that you raised first, because... I think part of the the reason that any viewer would feel uncomfortable is that the main character is very uncomfortable. He is hmm. hesitant. He is not very confident. He feels lost. And in terms of challenging stereotypes, you can probably answer both of those with one. We're not used to seeing black malehood portrayed that way. Uh, we're used to like a hyper-masculine. We're used to a super thugged out. And there's just, there's more contradictions and more nuance, more vulnerability like extreme vulnerability yet also a lot of silence in um donald glover's character and it's very different for any of the characters he's ever played before which Mm -hmm. is like super outgoing goofy physical silly like always smart but always positive and like up and this character is very melancholy and down and the way the jokes play out they're not sitcom jokes there's no setup punch you don't see what's coming all the time. The the mm-hmm. jokes are, there's a level of threat and uh, physical risk often, whether cutting to a shootout or the shooting range and the you know, yeah. poster of a dog, like that's very uncomfortable. Like if you saw somebody bring a target of a dog to a gun range, that would be really uncomfortable. <laughs> but then the <laughs> well, discussion that follows was also it's like, why would I shoot at a human target? Like it just, it right. the show challenges far more than racial stereotypes. 
it just challenges your sense of what a show is, what a joke is, and like how we are supposed to respond to really weird situations. I mean, I think the show is not just not a cop out term; it's a weird show, and it embraces that weirdness. And we're not used to that. We're used to being spoon fed much more by our media, so I think that's pretty uncomfortable as a viewer. Donald Glover's character does not make me uncomfortable. I think, and actually hearing Bartunay talk just now, I think it clarified for me what did make me uncomfortable, which is Paperboy. He made me uncomfortable mm. because of the fact that he was dealing drugs and he had, and he had a gun. He seemed really threatening at first, or, 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 or that he was going to be set up to either be part of an act of violence, which he was, yeah, right. um, or be the victim of it. So th- I think it's Paperboy that made me go, uh-oh, in the very beginning, like in the first episode, and maybe right. even the second one until I kind of relaxed into it. But I'm sorry, Tanner. Um, My wife and I binged it over the last few days, and like we just approached them as, as interesting characters, thoroughly enjoyed them. And I think what it shows is that people are interesting. And if you show real people yeah. and not stereotypes, caricatures, well-crafted real people <laughs> are interesting no matter who you are. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, Paperboy, you saw a bit of a facade, I think, in the first couple of episodes. Mm-hmm. And then over the course of the season, we've seen him as this, you know, he's kind of irascible and irritable <laughs> and vulnerable in his own way. And he doesn't want to be this this thug. And, and yeah. he's, he's, he's acting a certain way because he's like, you know, like he said in the cars, like, I do this because I scare people at ATMs and right. I don't know what else to do. Right. I know Donald Glover said in a few different interviews that he wanted people to feel how uncomfortable it is to live in black skin. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. funny because every time I watch an episode, like I remember, you know, Paperboy, he's like threatening, menacing or whatever. But I remember seeing this and I don't find him menacing. I actually think he's like the cutest, like one of the cutest characters on there. Now um, I do. I agree with um, you. Yeah. And, and I and I always and I listen to everything like the in-betweens. And, you know, he's like, man, I don't want to go to this thing. I want to finish watching Amadeus. What? <laughs> you know, like people are complex. Right. And it just reminds me of real life in a way that I, for me, this is like a primer if you want to go more intense to like American crime, the first iteration of it. The other thing I think that made me uncomfortable and and actually does still make me uncomfortable about it, and again, that's not a criticism of it, there's this surreal feeling that surrounds the show, well, particularly when Earn and Paperboy and and their friend Darius are there, where things feel slightly off kilter, like a little druggy, a little like kind of hallucinatory and sometimes like like yeah, and, and like sometimes malevolent. And I'm not saying that the characters, but like some, like stuff that's going on around them. Like there's a knock at the door, open the door. There's a guy in a Batman mask. Like what the fuck? Or or when or when they're going I to go sell that. or when they're going to go sell that samurai sword, and there's a a man you know screaming in some Asian language, like on the phone with some goats behind him. There's something that's so that feels malevolent about it, or just like just slightly like it like. I don't know. I feel like like yeah. when I see Paperboy sometimes and and actually mostly him with my favorite character which is Darius. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like he's almost like Lewis Hyde's Elegba, his mm-hmm. book Elegba. Anyway, it's like he has like a mischievous well, he's Nigerian, and it's a Nigerian character, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, Darius is Nigerian-American yeah. in, in, on the show. And Elegba is, is like the the demigod, the Orisha, the trickster who stands by the door, who causes mischief, who likes candy, and always poses questions mm-hmm. that kind of take you, like, kind of, like, break your neck. But when I say malevolent, I'm not saying that I think the characters are. But, like, there's there's a certain no, just there's, feeling there's, in there's the air. There's a level of, like, menace in some of the scenes. Yeah. And like yeah. Danger. But I think, I mean, to go back to this idea that one of Glover's goals is to put you in black skin, like that's black life. Like there's menace. <laughs> there's a level of malevolence to like being black in right. America where right. at any moment somebody could call you out, you know, and it's not always someone from a different race. Like you could be called mm-hmm. out for not being black enough. It could be a police officer. Mm-hmm. It could be a, mm-hmm. anyone with seeming authority over you. And I think that level of randomness to 
the menace that you face yeah. is is part of the large scale being blackness that we see play out in the specific lives of these you know u- unique individuals. It's kind of brilliant. The menace has another side to it, which can sometimes be a, a humorous one. Like sometimes you don't know mm-hmm. whether something is supposed to be funny or supposed to be scary. For example, the the character Zan is that his name? Oh, um, I yeah. love that like, so much. Like there's something there's something that that feels a little bit malevolent about him as well, although he's funny. And and you know, it reminds watching the show reminds me of what it was like when I used to smoke pot, <laughs> which is that you never know whether something's going to come off as being funny or really scary, and it would just depend on maybe the pot you smoked or the mood you were in before you smoked yeah. it. But that's why I don't smoke it anymore. Actually, to go to the character Zan, one critic said the show's consciousness about how much of the world claims black culture. And so that's kind of alluded to in earlier episodes as the protagonists deal with the guy at the radio station who uses the N-word around Donald Glover's character, but not around the three of them. And then it certainly comes more to the fore when Zan shows up. I still don't know what to make of him. Which is again what do you, what not do you a mean his race or just his no, character? No, every all of it, all of it, like the whole like his whole appearance and like and and I, and, I think it's almost like the the <laughs> rush the Russian who disappeared in the Sopranos and you never heard from him again. Right? Are we supposed? I don't know if it's supposed to make sense. It's just life doesn't always. You know, it's just. I think it's, it's nonlinear. Life yeah. is nonlinear. Oh, sure, sure. It's the yeah. most, I mean, to live your life in a linear way or even to think that way to me is like boring. I mean, I love I love that just because, I mean, not only because I heard the word Dominican and it kind of like, you uh, know, yeah. but because I like, again, this whole thing about ambiguity when it mm-hmm. comes to like, for me, they always, almost on every episode, they challenge the ambiguity of, around identity mm-hmm. or what well, identity and, should be. And they're challenging, I mean, to come back to a point I made earlier, but I think it applies here too. They're challenging how a show reveals itself. Why is this mm. semi Ivy League educated dude? I think he has a job at the airport, but not anymore. And he's a music <laughs> manager, sort of. And he lives kind of with his ex girlfriend. And where else? Like, there's so many unanswered basic questions that it. an average show would have laid out nice, like organized Lego color coded pieces for you to, to yeah. build it along right. the way or build it for you to begin with. And it's an interesting contrast to the other two black shows of the moment, which are Insecure and Luke Cage, which I've I've watched a little bit of both of them. They're both very straightforward and conventional. Mm. Yes, it's about different people than white people, but it's very much stamped cookie cutter action hero relationship sitcom. The beats are are, right. are exactly what you would expect. I want to ask a very serious question to everybody myself, which is, do you even watch white people on TV anymore? Because I'm watching, <laughs> like I'm watching this and Insecure and Queen Sugar and Underground. Oh, I like, love Queen I, Sugar. I don't know the last time I saw a white person on my TV screen that Game wasn't running for president. <laughs> that wasn't running for president. Like everything else is just black. Ah, <laughs> huh, that's a great question. I watch a white person that's on Queen Sugar. I mean, I I, I, I liked it before, but I really like Queen Sugar now. I'm watching yeah. Transparent. Watching Black yeah. Mirror, yeah, um, yeah. I still watch. I still watch plenty of white people, but I. Yeah. Don't, but but over the past five years, I've been watching more people of color. I'm just um, saying, and, maybe, and more maybe, women. Maybe the same threat, you know, the same demographic shift that's happening in the population. <laughs> it's, it's clearly happening on our our moving image oh, yeah. screens. Oh, uh, totally, well. totally. Right. Which or is maybe, really exciting. Or maybe they're just giving more people chances because since folks are leaving television to go online. And canceling their cable subscriptions, maybe they're just right. like, "Yo, let's try to let's you know, let's see if there's any room for something a little bit edgier because we see that it's working online and people are bailing." 
I think it's a combination of all of those things. I think it's the changing demographics. I think it's the it, it's the activism and the protests, whether organized or not, about depictions of people of color, the lack of them in pop culture that have been going on for years now, and the fact that those voices are amplified, and the fact that the, the internet allows creators of color to have their voices heard because there aren't the same gatekeepers. I mean, I think it's all of a piece and culminates in this really interesting past two years where you have a lot of television that's not just starring, but is created by people of color. And I, I think we're only going to see more of that. But I still want to talk about this this idea of the world claiming black culture for itself, because I feel like it reached a, a zenith, or maybe it was a nadir, in the in the most recent episode, Juneteenth, with, with that... I don't want to call it a house party, the mansion party, and this McMansion crazy plantation, crazy party. husband. So, if someone wants to jump on this and like give the listeners a, the backstory of what I'm referring to, so she goes and she's married to this, you know, fabulously rich white guy that she admits. Who's she? Uh, the her her friend that she's Va- met, Van's, Van's friend, friend Van's okay. friend, and he is obsessed in a groupie, appropriating kind of way with black culture and going to Africa, and <laughs> it's just. I know people who've white people who've gone to Africa and gone native, and it's weird. Um, Me too. And I don't. You don't. I do. Yeah, it's, uh, it's yeah. very strange, and it it's like they're getting some sort of authenticity to their and like mainlining it via transfusion into their into their blood because they didn't get it in the suburbs. Um, <laughs> and no, it's why they moved to Brooklyn. It's like the cheaper ticket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bert, Isn't you know why everybody moves to Brooklyn? Do you know any? Do you know anyone like the husband in the in that episode? Yeah, there's no way to not. I mean, yeah. I went to. I think you'll be a vast minority of black people who, in sort of my life path, like grew up around only black people, but got this mm-hmm. like class upgrade, this educational booster rocket, which shifts <laughs> your social world into some level of like American elite during the time that hip hop took over and then was taken over by the world. Like there's no way that you have not come across some at least diluted version of that extreme character who like yes. tries to be down, tries to give you the black handshakes, tries to out black you because they read more about blackness than mm-hmm. they think you've lived. And so their scholastic understanding of <laughs> you makes them feel very entitled to recommend, you know, very personal things to you, like what to eat, what to read who to date, where to live, where to travel, where to spend your money. That's what white supremacy lets you get away with and that, <laughs> at the harshest end. And that's just what the selling of culture has allowed all people to do because you have a consumer relationship to a people which makes you think you understand mm. them. I recall meeting a few young women when I was in my 20s who adopted certain postures that that, that one could argue were similar to the the ones displayed in the show with that husband. And I think that maybe why he was so jarring to me was... Come on, he was a grown ass man. He was at least in his late forties, if not early fifties. Like it, it's something I would expect more from a young person than someone who's middle aged. I don't know if you remember, but like when he at the end of that episode, when he's gathered the guests around to have a kind of spoken word thing about, I think he's talking about Jim Crow. Um, yeah, he's haunt, haunted uh, by Jim Crow. He's haunted by Jim, Jim Crow. Crow. When, when when the scene starts, he's kind of moaning in this orgasmic way, and you're like, oh, at first, at first, I thought it was a sex scene because he's kind of it's, he's shot from below, and and he's like moaning in ecstasy, and I thought, oh my god, who is he fucking now? But then it ended up being that he was just performing. I, I do wonder how much of that is a comment on Atlanta specifically, because those people exist everywhere, mm-hmm. but you have because you have this large black middle class in Atlanta, and you have a lot of very successful black people involved. with 
Coca-Cola and a lot of the industry down there, mm-hmm. the relationship between the white establishment and the black establishment in that town, how was it different from, say, the, the relationship between the black and white establishment in different towns? Mm-hmm. I don't know. But it, I, I'm wondering if that's a comment specifically on Atlanta to have that dude. Because normally you're right. It's like a college student who's that into black culture. It's not the middle-aged white executive. Actually, no. Of, yeah. Actually, the, no. The uh, boondocks profe- had a character and, like that. Ooh. Sorry, go ahead, Rico. I know uh, male professors. One that comes to mind from a university around maybe New Jersey or thereabouts wears like hoofies and shit. And he's an older, older white dude. And I know a lot of women like that. Like older women that are oh, like that, really? that they tell you how to be, they tell you like how to be Dominican for mm-hmm. me, for example, or how to be something because mm-hmm. they know they they know a few more dialects than you, a few more words in Spanish, or so I we run into that. I think it's all because we're always on a quest. I think, and we should always actually be on a quest to redefine ourselves to actually forge our own identities. And you always see. I think everything is, in, especially on this show, is just how people react to identity. Well, speaking of identity, can we can we talk a little bit about what the show might be saying about internet culture and identity and identity politics? I know that Donald Glover over the years has gotten in a few spats on social media with regards to stuff he said, especially on Twitter. And I, I don't have a I don't have a specific example in front of me because I was dumb and didn't <laughs> put it in my script. But I do recall him getting yelled dumb, at a couple of times. Don't be dumb. <laughs> I was I was over I was overworked and overwhelmed. But there's that one. Okay, there's the episode, and the name of the episode is not Montague, but I'm going to call it Montague, which the entire episode is devoted to this idea that Paperboy has gone on a public access discussion show right. in it's which called, he's being yeah. taken to task for some lyrics in his songs that are. I don't know if they're both homophobic and transphobic or just transphobic. So there's the host of the public access show, there's Paperboy, and then there's a an academic about trans issues. And I'm not sure if she herself is trans. It doesn't matter. But yeah, it's never re- stated. But but regardless, Paperboy pushes back on the idea that he is being transphobic or that he's wishing for harm on on people with different identities than than his own. And then he makes an argument. And this just felt like very much very much like Donald Glover. He makes an argument in which he's trying to point out the potential absurdity of granting, quote unquote, legitimacy. That's my quote, not his. There's a segment on the show about a African-American man who claims that he's a white man. Right. From Colorado. <laughs> transracial. And transracial. And so there's there seems to be some sort of argument that Paperboy is making comparing transgender identity with transracial identity and 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 it's unclear whether like what Donald Glover, Donald Glover thinks about all this but it seems like a bit of a provocation like the whole episode is a provocation and so is the the meta meta public access show so i for one was a little shocked that there was that he was trying to make some sort of analogy even if through a character between transgender issues and the idea that someone can be transracial so that's my favorite episode <laughs> for the for its for its madness and the the high concept like theme of it black bieber is like probably my favorite just straight episode <laughs> that show forces grays on the grays because you have trans racial you have like a racial dolgeal type situation you got mm-hmm. caitlin jenner with transgender and you have homophobia like rearing its head in a way that destroys your neat left right good guy bad guy right side of history, wrong side of history, grid. And mm-hmm. this kid, you know, this black boy who thinks he's a white man because he shops at Patagonia, blows up the whole construct that the academic and paper boy have built in opposition to each other. And that the host mm-hmm. is taking great joy in. And the kid comes out and is like, 
oh no, homophobia, homosexuality is an abomination. And then it's like, that's people. We want to have our political analysis neatly tuck people away as like, oh yeah, you're progressive, which means you subscribe to all these belief sets and you're conservative. It means you apply to all these, you're religious. And we just, we can't be boxed that way to, to, to quote Raquel often. Like it's not binary. It's a mm-hmm. spectrum. And I think the idea mm-hmm. that we're talking, like gender is on a spectrum, that this show put a lot of our political assumptions about people on a spectrum and reminded us that it's not the switch. You know, it's not the binary switch. It's more of a, a spectrum or a dial. The funny thing is that they named that episode B-A-N. Yeah, what did that stand and it's for? Like, it's kind of black a black American something network. in network, but it um, also means something else. It means bitch ass n-word on the street <laughs> so i thought that was really cool because i could re- i could already tell that guy montague was yeah. don lemon he was a very <laughs> thinly veiled don lemon but for me i saw the transracial and the transphobic conversation living maybe side by side but not independent mm-hmm. i mean inter- independent mm-hmm. because um for me i felt like it looked like they were almost in a courtroom and they were putting free speech on trial I personally think we give too much credence and we pay too much attention to Caitlyn Jenner. Yeah. But he's like, yo, man, why is it that I have to be careful? Basically, what I think he was trying to say in the subtext was, okay, you guys are going nuts about me saying something, you know, that I'm not even thinking about. He says, I don't even think about what I rap about most of the time. But when you rap about things that are negative or taking somebody out or any kind of violence, then nobody brings that up because for some reason, you know, in the mainstream, black lives matter less. Yeah. Yeah. You know, than Caitlyn Jenner's. So Um, he's like, fuck that. I gotta mm-hmm. interrupt for a second because because Baratuna has to leave. Okay, so we're gonna let we're gonna say goodbye to him and then continue the may conversation. I, may, may I be excused from the? You from may the class. be excused. <laughs> you may. Here's your hall pass. You may, <laughs> fellow <hope> professors. <laughs> I'm glad that you were able to join us. Oh, um, me too. And I I do have one item for recommendations that I'll just throw okay. in right now, mm-hmm. which is there's a great show on FX. It's called Atlanta. And I highly recommend. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Very nice. Very nice. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Uh, Bye. uh, Bye. What do you think about Tanner about the, about the, the transracial dude? I want to talk about him a little bit more. He was hysterical. Okay. I didn't think he was commenting upon transgender politics, the transracial dude. I think you didn't, I think you thought it was funny. I just think he was, I thought it was a funny juxtaposition and, I mean, well, but he didn't invent that juxtaposition. People have made that comparison before, so I suspected maybe he was making a commentary. Well, if, it, if the commentary, if there was a commentary, I don't think there was anything diminishing or or he was trying to say about transgender people and, and the thing. If anything, he was making fun of the backlash or the oversensitivity of people these days. And that, like, all he said is he didn't want to fuck Caitlyn Jenner. Like, yeah. he didn't say anything was wrong with Caitlyn Jenner, wrong with transgender people. Jenner just said, said, you know, he's not not my type. I wouldn't. Right. And he actually right. even said, yo, I'm cool. I'm cool with everybody. Yeah, I'm cool with everybody. I think there was a, just an absurdistness. Is that a word? Absurdity? Ab- absurdity. That's a better choice. <laughs> absurdistness? Um, yeah. But that's, 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 also, that, that's a cool word, though. Like that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Let's go with it. <laughs> uh, absurdistness to the show. <laughs> that it was, you know, it was just like he, they just riffing on ideas and they had one pivots off the other. I didn't necessarily put... Okay. I, I, I didn't read that much into I it. I took it as a little bit of a finger poke at certain people, on, especially on social media, who would have taken a comment like, I just don't want to fuck Caitlyn Jenner as a an insult or might even go as far to call it like an act of violence. I'm not saying that like I agree with no, that. No, I know. Right. But like I do see discussions happening online around identity, especially that devolved to the point where if you 
if I were to go on Twitter right now and say that I don't, I don't really like Beyonce, because I don't really like Beyonce, I'm, I don't like her, I don't <laughs> dislike her personally. I just have no interest in her music or her as an artist. If I were to go tweet that, I would get ripped to fucking shreds right. <laughs> within 15 minutes, and I, a lot of it would probably devolve into accusations against me that would probably that I would think were very unfair that have to do with my ideas about, let's say. Black women, or black successful black women, or what? Like, right. like there would be motives that would be imputed to me because I said I didn't like Caitlyn, uh, Caitlyn Jenner, Beyonce. <laughs> sorry. Right. <laughs> now I'm gonna get in trouble for for conflating the two. So I think he was. I think he was making a bit of a statement about some of the more ridiculous rhetoric. That no, I think in the conversation between Paperboy and the academic was definitely about that. But I didn't think that the juxtaposition of the transracial mm-hmm. thing. I thought the oh. ju- juxtaposition of the transracial thing was just like an absurdist. Let's let's have he fun. Maybe think he the white guy. I mean the the white guy. Look at that. I bought Ooh, into it already. Right. The trans the transracial dude. He basically was just taking the position what he thought a white conservative male would take. Right. Okay. You know, oh, he's not homosexuality. That's crazy, but right? Right. Like he was, just... yeah. That's part of his his whiteness is that is adopting the sure. But there was a lot of discussion when Rachel Dolezal was really in the news about the legitimacy of the or of the idea of being transracial and people was who there? Made, I yes, feel there like was. The, I feel there like was, there was yes, there mostly was. dismissing. That's no, what I think too. I no, think Melissa Harris Perry was, w- w- but she was kind of the only one. I feel like no, she wasn't the only one. She may have been the most high profile one, but she was not the only one who was raising questions. I'm not saying that. She she, that she was weighing in on one way or another, but who raised the question? If someone says they they felt like they were, they were born in the wrong body, or they were born the uh, they don't identify with the with the gendered body that they that they were born into. Can someone else not say, "Well, I don't identify with the racialized body that I was born into"? I don't have an answer for that. But like people brought that up after Rachel Dolezal, it was it was a really hard yeah. discussion because people tiptoed around it, and some people got yelled at, like mm-hmm. Melissa, but. I, I don't know. I, I We think... had an episode dedicated yeah. to that, remember? Yeah. And I think what we decided was, yes, I mean, no, I, what, you can't what, be transracial. <laughs> what, no, what, what, <laughs> I compared that interview of, of her interviewing Rachel Dolezal to, it was like Neil Tyson interviewing a seven-day creationist and giving their thoughts credence as, as actual mm-hmm. fact. I felt mm-hmm. like she was, she gave Rachel Dolezal, who was clearly not a well person, way more credence than they deserved. The problem is to spin off another job because is we conflate tribalism with race. Like race is a thing that doesn't exist. It gets assigned to people and with social contracts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the, we have tribes in America. Like blackness, black people are a a tribe and there are sub tribes within that tribe. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, oh, can that, I quote, right. can I quote homeboy from uh, in the during the party? He said, uh, this spooky thing called slavery happened, and you kind of erased our ethnic identity here in America. Uh, Black uh, Americans. Right. Yeah. I mean, no, but I'm using, I'm using tribe in a total, I'm not in any kind of like, you know, native sense. I mean, like, you know, Catholics are a tribe. They exhibit tribal behavior. They're a group, right? And Trump so, supporters. Trump supporters are a tribe. Exactly. No, they're trolls. <laughs> right. So you have it's these- a tribe of trolls. You have they're these, a basket of deplorables. And can you, as a white person who- grows up in an entirely black community, feel more affinity for those people and that group as a cultural group? Yeah, you can, but to say that you are a black person is... is, is but not Rachel Dolezal didn't grow up in a black community. Well, I know. That's why she, her whole thing was absurd. But, but okay. And not only is it absurd, you see, it's I'm like not Do- Don Lemon probably... If you I'm not willing... You know what? I'm not willing to... I think that she's silly, and I, but I, I have to like have some 
a moment where I take a deep breath and, and, and try and have some curiosity or humility and think, I don't know. I'm not in her brain. Like maybe she legitimately thinks that she I don't think she's born in, her in the brain. No, I don't That's think she's in her brain. In the wrong body. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Like I just I don't know. Um speaking of women, this is a weird segue to go from Rachel Dolezal just to the issue of women in general, but I'm gonna make the segue. How would you analyze the way the show treats women? Emily Nussbaum, who's the reviewer for The New Yorker, who just won a Pulitzer, in, in her review, she was making some commentary about Earn and 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 Van, and and she and she just this was kind of a throwaway line, but she did she did say it. She said um, the conversations between Earn and Van, in particular, are just realistic arguments between exhausted parents trying to figure out where they stand. They can be a bit mumblecore because Van doesn't get to be funny, and that's the end of the quote. And I think that I thought about that. I'm like, yeah, Van doesn't really get to be funny. She doesn't get to be funny. I think that she was, you know, it's great that he devoted a whole episode to her. And I liked the episode, most of which took place in a fancy restaurant where she was, seemed to be meeting like an old girlfriend of hers mm-hmm. who it's unclear if the girl have, if the girlfriend has a career. Yes, her or, career is being kept. Okay. or But I wasn't sure if she was a career a career woman who also was also kept or whether she was just a kept woman. She's escort. I don't think she was an escort. An escort, but not in a way where she's like actually working for an agency. She's just kept like, you know, she she dates basketball players and, and athletes and, and, and rich men for a living. And she flies around and she keeps them company. That's what okay. she said. Well, I don't know that she said that explicitly. I think there was some amb- ambiguity as to whether she was a career woman who happened to have famous rich she's, boyfriends or whether her career was having famous rich she boyfriends. She said very explicitly, I provide a service. I keep them company. I keep provide a service. And I'm valuable. That's why it's called value. Right. But even so, it doesn't mean that that's her only yeah. job. Like, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't. You're like, you're like shaking your head at me. Ooh, I am, I'm not I'm shaking. Not, I'm laughing. I'm not convinced no. that she, that she, that okay. that is I, her I think, I think it's ambiguous. It could yeah. be, it could be either way. Anyway, so what do you anyway. think about the depiction of women on the show? Tanner. You go. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think it's, I think it's fine. Well, have you thought about it? No, I haven't okay, thought you about haven't, it. Okay, well, you're enjoying I mean, the show, right? I'm okay. enjoying the show. Yeah. I, I think, I think Van is, is, is a well-developed character. Mm-hmm. Is she as well-developed as she should be as compared to the others? I hadn't, I haven't given that much thought. Well, okay. I, I, I like her character. I okay, it. so I'm asking you to give it the thought now. So let's okay, think about it. All right, well then let, let go, go and come okay. back to me. Okay. I think it's really interesting that his di- directorial, directorial <laughs> debut was that episode called Values that starred her and another woman it was mm-hmm. completely non-linear. The other guys had to sit down mm-hmm. and let her have take her a seat. <laughs> take a seat. But I totally, absolutely, I'd rather you do a main one main character well mm-hmm. than do a bunch of stereotypes. And I feel like so she, why does it have to be one or the other? I mean, for it has to be one or the other. Now, I mean, that's what he's doing. That's what he chose to do. As so far, that's what it's presenting itself. Wait, wait, wait. wait okay, wait. this is what. Let's back up. I, okay, I'm not sure I understand okay, what you mean. Okay, I hope. In the future, just the way she hopes in the future, because I read her, I read an article where she was saying, I hope that they, you know, we have, that actually, that woman, the actress, Zazie Beetz, Mm -hmm. plays Van. Mm -hmm. She said she wants that woman who she starred with on on that episode to come back. Okay. She's like, oh, I want her to come back, babysit, do something. I just want, because she said the energy felt really good to be with another woman and to have somebody. And she said, I hope that they have more women in the show. Mm -hmm. I like it too, but it's, you know, out of the lesser of the evils, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I prefer that they have a, a character that's complex like her. Like Van or like, like the girlfriend? Van, okay. Like Van. The girlfriend mm-hmm. to me wasn't complex at all. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting and I like that she's even there and she's like, and I think she she's a very real character. I was, actually I was like her a long time ago because I was also a single mom of a very young, at, at a young age, uh-huh. of a young child, you know, uh-huh. what, of a daughter. Uh-huh. And 
she kind of shows that you never have really a chance to kind of like have fun and be and just like take a break for being a parent mm-hmm. the way guys do. You know, for her, she's always like paying. She has to pay the rent. She has to pay everything. Earn is like out there trying to find himself. She has to always be the adult. She doesn't even have right. time to slip up. Yeah. As a matter of fact, we saw what happened. A lot of women. Yeah. Yeah. So we saw what happened. But I like that she treats it with like, okay, fuck. Okay. But she's not angry. She's not, a, she's not playing a stereotypical character. She can no. get perturbed. She can get angry. Like, oh, really? Like, when she picked them up to go to that Juneteenth party, she was like, mm. She does She she does play a, a bit of a nag, though. She does. I don't think she's a nag. I don't I mean, I don't, I don't see I, it that I don't, way. I don't, I don't know that I think that she's a nag, but I think that, like, her, her role is written in, in such a way that she often has to play the, the role of nagging Earn or being disappointed in him or, or exasperated or nonplussed or what have you not all the time but, but like but she does serve that function in a way that other characters don't maybe his parents do which we, we've only met a couple of times maybe just once but she doesn't get to be funny yet she doesn't get to be funny yet I mean, what i liked about well, that I, I, I disagree the whole thing about her drug test was, was hysterical. i think that was funny too i thought she she played I and she's did. like oh, and she i mean she she had a condom full of piss blow up in her face i mean that's that's like and she yeah, had to okay. cut, get the piss from her kids' diapers. Okay. Right. Okay. That, that, whole, that whole scene with the kids' diapers and the piss was hysterical. Well, how realistic, first of all, how realistic was that? Could you really get piss out of a diaper? Like I've that? never tried. I've okay. never tried. <laughs> no, but I'm just wondering. And I, and I will not try. <laughs> yeah, can you, right. can you do a test tonight? <laughs> no. um, well, okay. That's fair. But she was also being funny in the context that she was being funny by herself. Like, we haven't seen her be funny and loose, really, around Earn or anybody else. So, so yes, I agree that she was funny in that whole, like, set piece where she's trying to extract urine from the baby's diaper to pass a drug test. But she's not portrayed when she's in in discussion with other people as being very loose or funny, even in the, in the episode, in the same episode where she's with her girlfriend who's, who's in town, she does seem a bit uptight. I mean, what, what I liked about that episode, number one was that it was devoted to her, her, to her character. That was a nice, it was a breath of fresh air. What I also liked was that it, that it, I think successfully somewhat underscored the strange tensions that women can have with their old, with like longtime girlfriends in, in terms of how their lives have either intersected or bisected. And and we're like her her girlfriend is being kind of passive aggressive in a way. So there were some interesting tensions there that they then smoothed over, which was kind of a relief. Like I was very happy at the end of that that, that first scene. I didn't see it that way at all. Okay. I didn't see it that way at all. I saw it as that was her old school, you know, her friend from back in the day. Mm-hmm. They're having they're having um dinner and immediately, I mean she's like, I'm I'm t- you know, I'm sorry I'm late. Because she's a mom and there's a lot of pressure and she's really playing the shit out of that role in a really authentic way, I think. Mm-hmm. And immediately the friend launches into judging her. She's judgmental the whole time. She like talks about somebody who had a, a scar on their face, who's a friend of theirs, who yeah. got into a car accident. She's like, so they're you having know, tension. Her. There's tension between them. They're- well, it's not tension that she's, it's not really tension so much as one character is being judgmental. Well, of the other. just in her talking about her fancy life, though, I think creates tension in Van because you can see Van's facial expressions and she's kind of rolling her eyes. And then she you can you can sense that she's tensing up a bit, not because anything explicit is being said to her in judgment, but because just the, the fact of discussing like Paris versus London or yada, yada, yada is it, it's such a stark contrast to what Van is going through. So I think there is a lot of unspoken stuff going on there and the stuff that is passive aggressive. But I also saw a really good a good conversation about identity and about the repercussions of what happens when you're not true to yourself. Like the little lines, like um, you know, you let Fernando fix your roots. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then and then you know, I I read in one place, I read somewhere where they were saying you know like you don't see Van's friends the repercussions 
of, you know, of her life right away, if, mm-hmm. you know, but you kind of do. Mm-hmm. You see her in makeup that's too light. Mm-hmm. You see her in, you know, straightened hair. You kind of see her become kind of what she thinks her clients, because I still believe she's just uh, a, 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 a girlfriend. No, not, mm-hmm. a, not necessarily even a sex worker, a girlfriend for hire, maybe. That's what I mean. That's just what I got from watching it. Wait, can we make a distinction? What is the di- difference between it? You don't have to have sex if you're a girlfriend for hire. You just go and hang out and be the arm piece and be cute and go to a party. And uh, I don't know, you know. I don't know. I'm not going to call her a sex worker because I'm not. Well, I'm not using explicitly. That. I'm not using that as. A, I'm not using the phrase sex worker as a pejorative. But like, I find it hard to think that there are that I, many men who pay money to have a woman accompany them to events and don't that physical affection does isn't doesn't play some part of. Of of that transaction, You'd be surprised what men pay for. I would be surprised. <laughs> Google Elliot Spitzer. No, remember him? Uh, yeah, I remember him. Sorry, um, Tanner, you were going to say. Uh, what was I going to say? Well, I, well, we were giving you a chance to get some thoughts together about how how you think women are depicted I in think, the show. So, I think I go. think you may be right that you know women are too often portrayed as, as humorless nags, and that's that's a shitty role to get shoehorned into. I, I didn't say that. I said that Van <laughs> is often asked to play a character, or but, her but, character serves a function to be like the, like... But if you the, were in a relationship with someone like Ern trying to raise a kid, what else could you be? Exactly. Well, I think that perhaps I wouldn't have a relationship with him, like, like the one that she has, because I would be so exasperated. I'd be like, give me child support and leave me alone. But she... They're getting to know each yeah, other. This, this is it's the more thing complicated too. than that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. And maybe her, she will develop as this rest of the season progresses and further seasons. But I do think for the first seven episodes, for the most part, she has been the kind of disapproving, you know, I really wish you to get your shit together type. That doesn't mean that she's a bad person, that she's a bitch, that she's even mean. But that is that is the function that she plays. More so than anybody else does. I mean, his his two best friends. Well, maybe they're not his best friends. His cousin, but his yeah, yeah his cousin. But like his, he hadn't seen him in a while when he when he right when he right so got like, in on yeah. his career. But they don't they don't question him in that in that way at all. Well, no, of course they don't have a kid with him. Right. She challenges him to like man up, basically. Yeah. And sure. men are always uncomfortable with being challenged to, especially by a woman, as we see in in real <laughs> life, right? But I f- I feel like in the episode uh, that centered on her, I thought she had funny stuff with Paperboy when she's calling him about you know how do <laughs> how do I get pass a drug test? She had funny stuff trying to pass a drug test. I felt like in the Juneteenth episode, that was as much about both of them mm-hmm. in that social context mm-hmm. of going to that really fancy party mm-hmm. and how they both felt out of mm-hmm. place there. I think we'll see more of her as 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 the thing. As yeah, the I think it was on. funny on Juneteenth. I thought, yeah, I thought I thought both of them were hysterical. Yeah. yeah. And- <laughs> oh my god, this is this is this is random because this was not on Juneteenth. I think it was in it was in the episode with with the club. What was that yeah. episode called? I think in the club or just the yeah, club. in the club actually. Yeah, it was yeah. called in the club. I think it's called in the club. Okay. Yeah. I, well, I, I thought I just made that up. I think one of the funniest things actually in the whole show so far that, that went totally unremarked upon even during the episode was when. Earn has broken into the back manager's office to get the money that he's owed, he and Paperboy are owed, and he bursts into the manager's office, and the manager's in there with the woman, and they're talking, and Earn Earn stops for a second and then barfs a little bit. <laughs> he barfs, like, on the floor and then continues talking, and there's no discussion about the fact that now, that now there's vomit on the floor. Right. He, as the scene ends, like, the manager is, like, like pushing him out of the room and I'm thinking they're stepping on vomit there's vomit down there I mean I can't see it but I, I just club saw life baby <laughs> that's club life that was one of the nicest little kind of details in the whole show just the- there are a lot of cool details on that yeah. show I yeah. love re- when I found out that Darius was actually Nigerian American yeah and how he, they found out I mean I just thought that was so funny 
So I, I, I want to wrap up the conversation. Okay. Um, there, there was, there was, and AC, my, our producer may cut this because we've gone on long, but uh, there's a clip from, I believe, the second episode where Ern is in jail briefly. And there's a dude. There's a dude who's, who's in the jail with Ern. And I just want first AC to play the clip. What you, uh, what you do to get in? Um, damn, man, I should have just went home, boy. Instead, I'm in here locked up because of food. I ain't seen about 11 years, man. Why was that five points about to kiss the bus, you feel me? And this nigga I ain't seen 11 years come up and talk about, man, listen, hey, boy, I ain't seen you about 11 years, boy, let's hang out. They go get a bill. So I followed him to the goddamn gas station. We get two bills, ain't get but two of them, but they were the big ones, though. It was the big ones. You know, anyway, so nigga like, man, come on, let's go, go, go to the house and drink them. So we get to the house, like, man, my old lady in here, so we just gonna drink them on the porch. You feel me? I'm like, boy, APD be rolling through here, boy. He, he done talked me into it, so sure enough. APD didn't roll up and seen the goddamn two cans out there. Like me up for a pub intoxication. You know what I'm talking about? Now, I'm in here, man, because this nigga, man, I ain't seen 11 years, man. I'm going to be in here till Tuesday because I ain't cash my check. That's messed up. Damn, man, I should have went home, but shit. Damn, man, I said I was sorry. I just ain't seen you in like 12 years. Man, this, fuck you, Grady. Shut up. Okay, so... <laughs> AC wanted me to to ask Tanner to take a, a stab at a rough translation of the dialogue. But the thing is, again, I'm not from the South. I understood most of what he just said. What was interesting, and it was, goes back to something that, that Donald Glover said in his interview with Robert Brown when they were starting the show, I think it was in reference to that guy. The director didn't understand what he was saying. <laughs> and... and Donald Glover wanted that in the thing in the scene because that is is very intense regional dialect and mm-hmm. that is made disappear eventually. And he wanted that character captured on the show. Oh yes, okay, I love that. Yeah. But yeah, no, the, but basically he ran into a guy he hadn't seen in eleven years. He said, "Let's get a drink." They got a couple of big big beers from from the store. Right, they went back. They, they drank, sat on the porch. They sat on the porch, drank outside. APD rolled rolled That's up right. and got him for an open container. Yeah, and they're gonna have him locked him up till Tuesday because uh-huh. he can't get out until Tuesday because he didn't get his paycheck. Yeah, yeah. So wait a minute, did he <laughs> say that he was trying to? He wanted to document the, these these disappearing accents. Yeah, they, they said it was that deliberate. was deliberate. Yeah, the, uh, the, oh, the I love no. That. Here, here's here's the quote. I saw the article open. After three takes, the director took me aside and said, "I don't know what he's saying." To hero that guy was speaking patois. Glover laughed. That character is an artifact. Culturally, we're becoming more homogenized. That dude isn't going to be around in seven years. You aren't going to be able to find him. White people are moving into Bankhead, one of the historically blackest neighbors in Atlanta. Glover yes. paused. It's important that dude gets represented in this show. That well, is so. Ch- yeah, it's. Great. I have to say, I am emotionally. <laughs> I have an emotional reaction to this as somebody from New York City who's Dominican, Dominican, American, New Yorker, who people love my accent when I'm not like, if I'm not dealing with a white person who's like in media or something. We're going to leave Atlanta there for now because it's time to get some recommendations. Now, we heard Baratune's recommendation, which in my mind was, was, a both, cop out. Yeah, was both a cop out and inspired. Raquel. Oh, mine is kind of easy. It's basically the most profound human interest story I've read in this election season, and definitely the most profound story I've read about race and about ra- about conversion, and you know, just like oh, it's just a, an amazing story. Oh, I think I know which one you're talking um, about. Since Leo Felton, I haven't read something yes. that was this deep. I know what you're talking about. It's called about. the White Flight of Derek Black. Mm-hmm. Somebody who I well, well for, first tell the listeners what the story, where the story appeared, and what's it about. Well, it's on, in Washington Post. Yeah, uh, put it on. Uh, we'll put it on show about race on okay. page. It was written by Eli Saslow. 
And it's basically about the son of Don Black, who is the founder of Stormfront, which is this hyper racist, you know, website. And actually, I think didn't Dylan wasn't Dylan Roof inspired by what he read on message boards on Stormfront? Probably. Okay. (laughs) But at any rate, he's a really like, as Trump would say, bad, bad dude. And his child with. David Duke's ex-wife, who's yeah, his wife. Yeah. And actually, David Duke is his godfather. So this kid was basically being honed to take over this whole, you know, this white supremacist, mm-hmm. white nationalist kind of uh, world, right? Mm-hmm. And he um, basically has a conversion, and he talks about this conversion. And then Donald Trump is, is mentioned, and, you know, just how we are, how he feels very culpable for where we are in America today, as far mm-hmm. as race relations go. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's such a beautiful story. Yeah. And it's just... It was really, it was intense. Wasn't it? But yeah. Oh. My recommendation is also a, p- a piece of a piece of journalism, which actually came out, I think someone put it in our, in our Slack today, a piece by ProPublica about the ways in which, it, the ways that Facebook and the ways that, that companies target certain audiences on Facebook and the way that Facebook allows for the targeting of certain audiences on Facebook resembles th- things that are actually illegal in the people call the meat space world. For example, you know, advertising for affordable housing only to only to certain types of people. And because you can target so specifically on Facebook, you know, based on gender, race, age, ec- you know, income, um, in some cases that Facebook is essentially replicating things that, again, in real life, would get an organization or a company sued by, you know, uh, the Justice Department. Tanner. Yes, I've been reading Strangers in Their Own Land, uh-huh. Anger and Mourning on the American Right, uh, about southern Louisiana, where I'm from, and what's happened with uh, the white working class there and their, uh, let's call it cultural disenfranchisement mm-hmm. that they are feeling uh, in this current moment. It's a fantastic book. Um, probably going to be talking about it coming up soon on the show. Uh, in the next few weeks, so it's a great read. You can go pick it up. I feel jealous because Tanner seems to have enough time to actually read books. <laughs> like I don't get to read. No, he he always says when he recommends a book. At, at least when I've been on, I'm reading this book. So we don't know whether he's just reading a chapter. Oh, you don't there, know whether he's or whether he's it. read the book or a, this one. I this this one I'm in the middle of. I haven't finished, but no, I actually have had a lot of time recently to read. Uh, whole books. Yeah. Like, yeah I'm, lucky I'm, you. I'm, I'm between projects. Well, I'm unemployed. I don't know how lucky it, I'd call it. But yeah. Well, you're a, a freelancer, reading. so you're, you're freelancer. by definition yeah. always unemployed, right? That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's all for today. Our producer, AC Valdez. Thank you. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers and Jason Gambrella Panoply. You can see its entire roster of delightful podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. You can follow along with the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at showaboutrace. Or, as always, you can email us directly at showaboutrace at gmail.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of Raquel Cepeda, Tanner Colby, and Baratunde Thurston, I'm Anna Holmes.